0: Rad Dad, where we look for better dads one movie at a time. I'm Kylie. I'm Elliot. And we're going to talk about the movies we watched this week before crowning the baddest dad and raddest dad of them all. And as always, dad is an energy, not a gender.
1: Episode 83, we're here. We got our sick rucking-fotten Ari Aster shirts on.
0: Yeah, I'm wearing my hereditary, you're wearing your Midsommar. We're just cool people.
1: Yeah, pretty sick day. Um, We're in trouble again this week because it's another banger week. I'd say even more so than last week. We are covering less, but oh boy, they good. Let's get into it. The first one that we watched, we went out to Metro Cinema for another film in their Kino Confidential series, which is essentially, for all intents and purposes, in the context of our show, Metro's version of a mystery movie pick. Where we go to the theater, we don't know what we're going to see. They do release little hints leading up to the release, or to the screening rather, leading up to it, and we cracked the code this time, and we nailed it. And we saw the comedy horror musical Little Shop of Horrors, the director's cut. Say babe, you remember that Total Eclipse of the Sun about a week ago? (laughs) Shadow. It was directed by Frank Oz, and... In terms of writers, the screenplay was written by Howard Ashman and it's based off of the musical play by him. And it's also based off the film by Roger Corman and the 1960 screenplay by Charles B. Griffith.
0: That's complicated. Yeah. Um, Art be getting art, you know?
1: Yeah. It stars Rick Moranis as Seymour. Ellen Green as Audrey. Vincent Gardenia as Mushnick. Levi Stubbs as Audrey 2. And Steve Martin as Oren Scrivello, DDS. Synopsis. A nerdy florist finds his chance for success and romance with the help of a giant a giant man-eating plant who demands to be fed. Okay, what'd you think of Little Shop of Horrors?
0: So, like you mentioned, we we typically haven't been successful at guessing the mystery movie picks that Metro's okay. done. This is their third one, I believe you said that. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one, we did have a friend guess it and tell us, and, and they were right. But because we hadn't seen the film, we didn't for sure know. And the second one, we had absolutely no idea. Um, but when we figured this out, we got pretty darn excited mm-hmm. because this is one of your childhood favorites. Yes. And this is a really special film to me because you showed this to me, I don't know, when we were in our early 20s. Mm-hmm. And I had never seen it before. And often I find when you show somebody a film you loved as a kid that is, for the most part, a kid's movie. I mean, Little Shop of Horrors isn't really a kid's movie, but it's in that realm of, like, things a kid would love. Yeah, it's, like, pretty
1: easy to pick up. Like, there's good and there's bad. It feels
0: on par par with, like, Beetlejuice, where, like, totally adults... Like, it's not made for kids, but kids can love it. Um, And you showed it to me, and I find that typically when people when I have either been shown a movie that somebody loved when they were a kid that I never saw, or I show someone a movie that I loved as a kid that they've never saw, it's ultimately disappointing right, because yeah. they don't have that nostalgia. Like you will, at least at this point in time, never love the never ending story the way I do. Mm-hmm. It seems like I will never love princess bride the way you do. Those seem to be our two, two biggies. <laughs> um, but you showed me this and I immediately loved it and it felt like i'd been watching it since i was a kid like i had this very clear understanding that had i seen this when i was a kid i would have been obsessed with it there was just no doubt in my mind it's it slots right into in there with like all the tim burton films and my early love for horror and i wasn't a muppets person but i think you were
1: a little bit a little yeah but
0: um but it just it just felt like this was my childhood movie too, and we've kind of been obsessed with it ever since. And
1: is there a little bit of bittersweetness with that too, that like you discovered it so late and that you didn't have it as a childhood movie?
0: No, oh, I have enough other childhood movies, and I think it's special that you showed it to me and and we love it together. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you? How do you feel about that?
1: I think it's one of the most special things in my life that I got to show you this movie and that you loved it so
0: do you remember like getting ready to show it to me and like did you feel like I was gonna love it?
1: Yeah, I had a pretty good idea because I know. I mean, first off, you tend to like musicals more than I do. Yeah, I'm not like, like a musical.
0: I'm not a musical fiend. It's not like my number one genre, but I do like musicals.
1: Yeah, and for some reason, I am. I, I can lean more pee-pee-poo-poo about musicals, but... You
0: can be weird about it, but you do like a fair amount of them. I
1: do, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's like a by comparison kind of thing, like our Beatles argument we have. Like, you're a really big Beatles fan, and I like the Beatles, but you interpret that as I don't like the Beatles.
0: <laughs> yeah, but I I don't think I'm a really big musical fan. No. Like I don't know a ton about musicals. It's just when I do like a musical, I really like it.
1: yeah. Same.
0: Like I don't go see all the musicals and I'm not like a Broadway head.
1: No. And like.
0: Is that a term?
1: A <laughs> <laughs> Broadway head. Um. Yeah, I don't know. But this, I mean, like you said, I've been watching it since I was a kid. The reason I watched it is the reason I watched many movies before I probably should have watched them is my parents had a pretty healthy VHS collection and I was always attracted to the cover of this because it's just Audrey two and all of our casts being held in the, in its vines and then getting thrown into its mouth. And I'm like, this looks cool. This looks freaky. And I, I want to watch this. Yeah. I watched it by myself. And in terms of musicals, it's very rare, at least for me, that every song it's so, so good.
0: I think what this film slash musical has going for it that is so special is like the like the three narrators, like the three narrating singers. So like Crystal Ronette, Chiffon uh, in this film, they're played by Tishina Arnold, Michelle Weeks, and Tisha Campbell. Like they're the th- musical through line of the movie and they're so good. Mm-hmm. And there's this like humor involved in it too as they like jump into a story like with the total eclipse of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's it, the music in this is amazing.
1: There's like, and seeing it in the theater for the first time, there are moments in certain songs that give me the chills when I watch it at home, but hearing it loud in a movie theater with a crowd, there's just like, there's a moment in the, one of the opening numbers, Skid Row. That just like hits me right in the heart. And I got welly in the theater because I'm like, damn, this is just so was good.
0: Was it the chain link fence part?
1: I love I love that bit. But I also love when it, we do like cutaways to different people. It's like down on skid road, <laughs> down on skid. It's so good.
0: It's a pretty strong. It's not the first song, is it?
1: No. First song it's is, is Little, like Shop Little Shop of, Shop Horse. of Horrors. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I have to agree seeing it. Like I was so excited to see it in the theater because... I felt like this is going to be special in the theater. There's some movies where it's like, eh, we'll see it. Seeing it in the theater, do anything for the movie. Mm -hmm. And this one, like seeing like that theatricality of it bigger. Yeah. Both in terms of sound and like visually the size of a screen was like really awesome and made me like appreciate things about it even more. Um, I think the songs are just incredible. And like three out of the four movies we saw this week, I spent most of the movies just like bopping along. Yeah. Like in my seat to them. Um, So good.
1: I I, like one thing that I, I do wonder that could have made the experience in the theater a little bit better is that because it's part of this Kino Confidential and it is a mystery, like nobody would know that this was coming and I feel more people would have and the crowd is divided. I felt at least kind of divided between people that just really support Metro and want to come out and and take part in the Kino Confidential series. But also that they Metro was having their yearly poster sale right afterward and people who attended Kino Confidential got early access to the poster sale. So I feel like there was a decent amount of people in the crowd that were just there for that and they're like, Yeah. yeah, I'll come for the movie, sure. But I feel like you know, I know that there's a lot of a lot of back end stuff that goes into procuring a movie to do a screening of it. But I really feel like Little Shop of Horrors could have drawn out more people had it been yeah. more. I think it could have marketed. been
0: more like when we saw P.B. Herman.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> where yeah. you've
0: got people who love it a lot and then like. Wanting to bring their kids who maybe have never seen it. Um, I'm not mad that it was a smaller audience, though, because I also no. feel like. An advertised little shop of horrors show could get a little obnoxious. Yeah, and it wasn't like it was a really, really, really good audience, except for the one man in front of us who was who was really fidgety and he had his raise smart to wake. watch on raised to wake, and it was a very bright raised to wake. Um, that was, you know,
1: we talk about phones a lot, but yeah, like put your put your smartwatches on like theater mode.
0: Yeah, make sure they're not raising to wake because if like this person kept like scratching their head. So every time or like just like putting their hands on the back of their head and like leaning back and every time they did that their watch would turn on. Yeah. And it was like smacking our faces. It's like <laughs> ah. But other than that, the audience was like pretty sick. Um
1: I wanted to say quickly to just kind of circling back to, you know, me showing this to you. Not only am I really happy and it brings me so much joy that I did get to show this to you, but I love that you love it so much and now we get to love it together.
0: Oh, I completely agree. And I've, interestingly, unlike say with a Jaws, I've never felt like this is just your movie. Mm -hmm. I think that's because like when you first showed it to me, it's not like you have been talking about it our whole relationship. It was just like, oh, this is a movie I loved when I was a kid. Whereas Jaws, it's like, this is my favorite movie of all time. You know, and like, I think you love Little Shop of Horrors, but it's not the most important movie to you.
1: But also like I feel I don't feel so precious about Jaws either. Like I I got so much joy out of the fact that we saw it twice in two months in the theater. I love Jaws. And that you were like geared up, ready to go with me and that we can both get excited about watching it together time and time again. And you
0: have. So we talked about this, I thought, in a really lovely way on um, Wesley's podcast, Nowhere Fast, which we were on a week and a bit ago. Um, Because he asked us that question. He said, Kylie, it seems like you don't like Jaws so much. And I'm like, well, I do. And I explained how I grew up in a family with like there's four kids. And so there was a lot of competition for identity. Like, who am I in this family of four children? We're all three, roughly three years apart. And so if you claimed something, it was yours, right? My older sister likes Blink-182. Well, I can only like them so much. I like God Johnny Depp really lost that battle. They can only like that so much, right? Like, and I feel like you didn't have that. Most of all, because you were supported perhaps the most in your family in like, whatever you liked, that was really awesome. Thumbs up. Mm-hmm. Um, So maybe you're less precious about if someone else also loves it. And I also feel like in your family, there was a little bit more of a, like, I love this thing well, we should all engage with it then. Like, let's all watch this movie that one of us wants to watch together. And my family was not like that. It was like, well, I'm going to go ho- hole up in my room and watch this thing that nobody else loves. Mm-hmm. And so I'm learning to be like, no, we can love something together, even if I liked it first or even if you liked it first.
1: Yeah. Well, and like that's, I, I talked on, on Wesley's Nowhere Fast podcast as well about, one of my love languages is getting to share media that I love with people that I care about, and just getting to experience it with them, whether it's for their first time or not, uh, and it brings me so much joy. And that's what it was like growing up in my house. Like we had a very communal living room, in that if some, if my mom was in there watching Nip Tuck, then all of a sudden all of us are in there watching Nip Tuck. Together,
0: yeah. Nobody's complaining about like let's change what we're watching. Whereas that was more in my family. It was like okay, well, you need to stop watching what you're watching to watch something that we all agree on. Mm -hmm. So, my mystery movie picks are really nice because I grew up in a hard to make decisions. But I think (coughs) the older I get, the more I'm just like, oh man, somebody wants to have the same T-shirt as me. Fucking sick. Let's have the same T-shirt as each other. That's a compliment, as opposed to when I was younger, being like, no, that's a mine. And yeah. I think I can definitely appreciate like so we're getting a little off track with Little Shop of Horrors here, but part of the event, like you mentioned, was that they had a poster sale afterwards. And there was just one there was a couple posters that I was like, if they were there, that would be cool. But the one thing I was like, I'd love to get an After Sun poster. I know that they played it this year. I feel like it's not one that they're gonna hold on hold on to. Like I don't think they're gonna play After Sun all the time. Mm-hmm. Um so I'd really like to get that. I'd be really happy if I got
1: that. And I was hoping for a Rice Boy Sleeps poster, which unfortunately they didn't even yes. have. You
0: found out afterwards that like there was, um, one of the people who runs it had like a master list of what they had, not what they'd sold, but just what they had had to start with. And it was never on there to begin with. But mm-hmm. we stepped out. We actually left the credits early, which God forbid. I don't know when the last time we did that was years. Yeah. Years. I don't know. Maybe never. Um, but we were like, okay, let's, let's, we don't want to be like left in the dust for the poster sale. So let's leave. And it was just so overwhelming. Like their poster, there was like so many different posters in a tight space. The tables were small. So the posters hung off them, which meant as you th- rifled through them, they fell down. And I like started looking and then I got so overwhelmed. I was just like, fuck this. I don't need an after sun poster. Well, and
1: I forgot to take my ADHD medication that day. <laughs> so you were not doing So that. I am just. I am completely overwhelmed, like verging on a panic, panic attack. It's a feeling I like it was very not like me to yeah. have. I it was not pleasant at all.
0: No. And I, I felt similarly, but for different reasons. <laughs> and so we were just like, OK, whatever. Let's just go back into the theater and watch the credits. And we had gone to Little Shop of Horrors with our friend Elliot. Um, it we go to a, like a decent amount of movies with Elliot. And, and often it's just the three of us. And it always makes me laugh that I'm at the theater with two Elliot's because like, <laughs> Like that, when does that ever happen? Um, and so we we went, after the credits were done, we went to go back out and just say goodbye to them. And they said, I found this for you and had gotten me and found me an Aftersun poster. And Elliot also loves Aftersun, both Elliot's, you and, and her <laughs> friend Elliot. And they said, I really love Aftersun, but I know it has a particular emotional connection to you. So I want you to have this.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I feel like that's where I've gotten to with like loving media is like we can all love the same thing. That's why it exists for like more than one person to love it. Mm -hmm. Most artists don't want only one person to love their stuff, but the beauty of it is the way that we love it might be different. Yeah. And that we can appreciate why one person connects to it in a particular way and why another person connects to it in a particular way. And I think the beauty of little shop of horror is to bring it back to that. I think you and I connect to it in a very similar way. Yeah, like I think we think it's fun. We think it's funny. We think the songs rock, and and there is that like horror, that entry level horror element to it. That like sometimes that's what I want. I want I want the what I get out of a horror movie without actually watching a horror movie. Yeah, like I'm not in the mood for an actual like slasher, but I want to. See some gnarly things in a very like family friendly way. Yeah,
1: like I want it to tap into the genre without fully committing to the genre.
0: And through, like, I, I we need to talk about Audrey too. Like,
1: yeah, I got some stuff.
0: I like this is what without Audrey two, I wouldn't love this movie. And without the practical effects of Audrey two, they they remade the CGI.
1: And they that if they remade it, that's what. Probably.
0: Yeah. Maybe. It depends who got their hands on it, but it would be stinky. Um
1: Can I can I share some cool stuff about Audrey too?
0: Absolutely. I'm I'm uh tamping down on my trivia. I don't have time to look at trivia.
1: That's fair. Um, so I actually learned this so one of my favorite video series on YouTube is from uh, Corridor. They do the visual effects artist React videos and one of them was Adam Savage, who is one of the Mythbusters, but he used to work uh, in Hollywood developing miniatures and puppets and stuff like that. But I guess the plant puppetry of Audrey 2, it's incredible. It took six to 10 people to control Audrey 2. And something that's really cool that I thought was awesome is that Audrey 2, whenever there was a sequence with Audrey 2 talking or anything, it was filmed at 12 frames per second which is half of what typically is filmed at, so 24 frames per second. So that's why, because it's really hard to get something that big to be as articulate with like the lip movements and things like that. But I think the most impressive part of it is that they're filming it at 12 frames per second. But the first time that there's a sequence between a larger Audrey, Audrey 2 and Seymour or Rick Moranis, is that they're filmed together at the same time. So Rick Moranis had to slow down his movements so that it it could match. Because if he was moving at full speed, it would be... And
0: he's going to look like he's... Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
1: exactly. He's going to be like a Benny Hill sketch kind of thing. Um, So when he's walking, you can kind of see he walks and puts all his weight on one foot and then to his other foot and then to his other foot. um because he needs to balance and walk slower and move slower but then in those moments where he's actually like interacting with and touching audrey too like it's impressive that he is such a good actor that he could do that which is a good segue into let's talk about rick moranis for a second
0: well so i have a crush on him like i think he's a babe and like not just like it's funny because you I, i said that to you after we saw this and you're like like because of this movie and I'm like no when I was a little kid I had like a crush on like Barney Rubble
1: Wayne Zelinski.
0: <laughs> is that his name no, wait.
1: Honey, I shrunk the yeah kids. I
0: had a, less in that but still there was like something about him that I liked and then like sweet stoner guys are kind of my kryptonite mm. and so like Bob and Doug McKenzie too like that kind of the, the strange brew I get they're not stoners I think they they drink but They've got that stoner Wayne's world kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I like about I was having this conversation with somebody on Letterboxd. Um, What I like about the character of Seymour and that I think Rick Moranis really excels in bringing to him, even though it's already in the character, is that Seymour is like a genuinely nice guy. He's not a Ted Mosby nice guy. He's not a like, I'm a nice guy, so you should sleep with me. He's just actually a nice guy. Mm hmm. And, I mean, to, like, in a, to a self-deprecating degree, like, I'm a nice guy. Like, I don't think he even sees himself as a nice guy. Just, like, I'm not worthy of these other people, right? Well, but, like, he believes in, like, the fundamental goodness of people.
1: Well, and Rick Moranis plays Seymour so well that you you feel like he doesn't accept that he is just a nice guy and that he he almost conveys that he's a burden on the world
0: it's sad
1: it is really sad
0: but I mean part of his arc is like dealing with that right and and thinking about that as as well as like <clears throat> Audrey played by Ellen Green who was like the original Audrey on Broadway what a like voice that can't be replicated yeah Um, she's going through her own journey of like what is she good enough for right mm. and the two of them together being able to like show each other how they can be seen by somebody else. Um, but I think that that could come across very differently in an actor who isn't Rick Moranis. Like he just yeah. has such a sweetness inherent to him. And from everything I've read about his personal life, it seems like he just in real life too, is a genuinely nice, good human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I love getting to see him and, and I, I, I like his singing in it. And
1: yeah, it's really Suddenly, great. Seymour
0: is one of my favorite songs of all
1: time. Oh man! Another moment that gives me the the chilies is in the in the first duet that he has with Audrey II, where there's like this. Re- it's really up tempo and like really fun with Audrey II. Then we cut to Seymour and he's like, "I don't know." I yeah,
0: me too. <laughs> I love I that. Don't, don't know. That <laughs> so funny. Strong <laughs> reservations. <laughs> the lyrics are like the movie is funny and smart and yet doesn't take itself too seriously and just to like briefly go back to tui I love that he calls the plant Tui. like tui is so cute when it's little like it's so cute and like it's little it's a little pot and then it's a little coffee can and everything um and then it's kind of scary you know? like so it's really I don't know it's the puppets are wonderful, it's dark and it's fun and it's sweet and it's groovy and all of those things. And I know that the director's cut is not like your thing because you grew up with the original.
1: I, I think I was I was unfairly pee-pee-poo-poo about it at the, the day of seeing the movie and I think that's mostly because I was unregulated because I forgot to take my meds.
0: <laughs> and you just wanted the thing that gives you comfort.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the director's cut is bleak and yeah, I know I
0: like it, but, and it, and I, I do think seeing that on the big screen was pretty cool because it's yes. such a spectacle.
1: Yes. know, I totally agree with that. And I love that there is two versions for us to enjoy and both versions work for me.
0: And I love the story too. Like I, um, obviously we're not going to talk specifically about what the two different endings are, but Frank Oz was like really insistent on keeping the original ending from the the stage musical. And he said like as they kept having test audience after test audience after test audience like love, love, love the movie and then hate the whole movie because of the ending. Mm -hmm. He started to realize that like there's a different experience seeing something in a cinema as opposed to seeing it on a stage where like the actors are genuinely in front of you and they come out for a bow at the end. And he realized that like that difference in medium significantly impacts the way a piece of art is understood by the audience such that the ending had to be changed or the movie wasn't going to get released. And so he didn't want to change it, but I I just find that to be a fascinating like case study in the importance of medium.
1: Well, yeah, well a hundred percent. And I mean, Like we went to a fantastic musical this week. We'll talk a little bit more about it later, but there's something about the connection that if you're seeing something on the stage, that there's the potential you can make eye contact with a performer. And then there's that level of connection that will never exist. If you're just watching a film on screen.
0: Yeah. There's a tangibility to the stage and a, an in the moment interaction happening between audience and performer that isn't happening. like, In cinema, in like a book, that's been finished and there is an interaction happening between creator and person engaging with the text, but that meaning is made at two asynchronous points in time, Mm -hmm. whereas on the stage, it's synchronous, like it's happening in the moment and it actually makes a significant difference to how you interpret and engage with it.
1: Yeah. 100%. 100%.
0: Which is, I just find that to be so interesting. So I think it was really cool to see the director's cut. Hope one day they do a non-mystery version of the original cut so that it can get like probably a sold out house. I um, also want to briefly mention that at one point in time, I really, 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 really desperately wanted to impromptu fly to New York to see Little Shop of Horrors with Jonathan Groff playing Seymour. Oh my God. was like your number one boy crush. <laughs> yeah. Um, he would, yeah, it'd be so good to see more. We watched a couple of yeah. clippies from it and
1: And we're so jealous.
0: But this movie, it's it's so special that we love it together, that you were able to like bring me into the fold of something that means so much to you and we can both love it equally. Um and it was really cool to get to see it in the theater.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent agree. And I also want to say your the high school that you work at, they always put on a a, a musical or a couple of musicals a year. And I know it's ambitious, but I would absolutely love it if they did Little Shop.
0: I think they've the other one I, I've always really thought would be cool. And I remember <clears throat> when we were in high school, because I teach at the high school that I went to, that we went to. I was like, if they did Sweeney Todd, I would do musical theater. Mm. And I think they've considered it before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Little Shop would be really hard with just the like effects.
1: Plants of it all.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. Also, it's a really small cast. And they're always looking to balance Work the number of it. students yeah. who are in it. And then they're also looking to, like, they have to consider the gender breakdown of a cast depending on which students are enrolled. Uh,
2: that's so when fair. they
0: have years with, like, more male students, which is awesome, they have to look at at plays that either have, like, non-gender specific casting um, or that have more male characters.
1: Yeah. No, that's fair. Not that I want to hold on this for too much longer, but I just also wanted to call out Ellen Green, who is incredible, was also in one of our favorite shows that we haven't revisited in a long time, but Pushing Daisies.
0: Oh, is she one of the like older ladies? Yeah. Oh, I did really like that show back in the day.
1: Yeah. Don't know if it holds up. It has an 8.4 on IMDb.
0: Feels like it might have some manic pixie dream girl energy, but who made it? Brian Fuller?
1: Yeah fuller <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's just it kept adding to his name i've liked i i, I bet it holds up
1: i bet so too and lee, lee pace is, is an, also another boy crush of mine
0: oh yeah handsome handsome man
1: okay this is great i love this movie and i'm so happy that we'll get to continue loving it and watching it forever uh how does little shop of horrors make you feel
0: it just makes me feel unfettered love i'm obsessed with it mm-hmm. you
1: just filled with pure joy
0: yeah, one of my all-time faves. One of my all-time faves. Yeah. Okay, we went to a very interesting experience, and I wasn't even sure, like, how we would talk about it on the show, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. Um, we went to the IMAX synchronous World showing. premiere. Premiere of Stop Making Sense, the 1984 documentary music show from <laughs> The Talking Heads. It's, yeah. a, it's a live concert, but it's not live. Oh my God, I'm fucking this up. Um, It was directed by Jonathan Demme of Silence of the Lambs fame. (laughs) And in terms of writing credits, there is a writing credit to both Demme and like the Talking Heads as a group. So it features the Talking Heads. Mm -hmm. Uh, The four main members of the Talking Heads are David Byrne, who does guitar and vocals, Chris France, who does drums and vocals, Jerry Harrison, who does guitar, keyboard and vocals, and Tina Weymouth, Weymouth, who does bass, percussion and vocals. And then they had an extended lineup with Bernie Worrell, Alex Weir, Stephen Scales, Lynn Mabry, and Edna Holt, who did a variety of instrumental and vocal work. Synopsis. Considered by critics as the greatest concert film of all time, the live performance was shot over the course of three nights at Hollywood's Pantages Theater. Pantages? Pantages.
1: Put on your pantages.
0: In December of 1983 and features the Talking Heads' most memorable songs. What did you think of Stop Making Sense, the IMAX world premiere?
1: Three things right off the bat. First, this is a re-release brought to us by A24. This is the first of the next three films that we watched this week that were, were distributed by A24. Um, second, this is, as you said, lauded as the greatest concert film of all time. I think that might be true. Third point, this was fucking incredible. I love this so much. I can't even tell you.
0: (laughs) It was such an interesting experience because like you really wanted to go. And with a rare exception, I'll always go to the theater. Mm -hmm. Like if somebody wants to go, unless I like have a moral objection to either someone Mm -hmm. who made the film or the content of the film, I will always go. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was like, okay, sure. But I like, didn't really, I'm not a huge pre-recorded. Um, comedy or music person because of what we just spoke about with like that synchronicity of like a live show and how something often feels seems to be lost in the recording of it. There's been some exceptions. Like I think Rathaniel um, Mm. is done really beautifully to create a particular feeling to a audience who's sitting at home. Like I think that was thought about, but often I find that like, live concert footage and live comedy is just like shooting the show and it it, it falls flat for me and I just wish I was there.
1: Well, it's also it's not just necessarily shooting one show, but shooting multiple shows and cutting together of multiple shows that have multiple energies. And yeah. yeah, it doesn't
0: always work for me. And so I do like live comedy and I love going to concerts, but I don't watch recordings of those things nearly as much as you do yeah so i wasn't like so sure about it i was like i don't know like i'll go okay first of all we ran into like so many people there
1: everyone we knew was at this thing (laughs) (laughs)
0: like that's that's hyperbolic but um we ran into my fine arts department head who i really love like he's one of my mentors of how to be like a good creative person, a good human being. And then also like a good teacher, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: really, really lovely, lovely human being. But then we also ran into my favorite teacher of all time, Mm -hmm. um, who was my high school grade 10 and 11 English teacher. And she was there with her husband and her son who we're, we're, we have a good relationship with the whole family. And so at the end of the the film, when there was a break between it and the Q and a, I turned to the people I was with that. We were with Elliot again. And I just said, my favorite teacher of all time is here and I need to go say hi. And it was just big hugs all around.
1: Oh, her brain was melted. She just
0: kept saying, that was so good. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, her and her husband are like the two coolest people in the world and have seen, like they've seen David Byrne more than once. And Mm. um, so that was just really lovely to like run into like some really cool people that I really respect and don't get to see very often at like. This thing where it's like, if you see someone else there, you're like, ah, you're cool, too.
2: Mm -hmm. You
0: know, like, I feel like we got really big, cool points from some older people I admire (laughs) for being at something that's from the 1980s.
1: Yeah. A lot of like, what are you doing here?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It was really, really cool. But when it came to the actual show, I wasn't so sure how I was going to feel about it. And it took a little bit. Um, One of the reasons being that Cineplex didn't make it clear that the show was going to start right at the start time. And so people were coming in late, Mm -hmm. likely some on accident, six o'clocks really early for a weeknight, Mm -hmm. but also some people probably trying to like skip the credits and missing 20 to 30 minutes of the show. Um, And so, you know, that was a little distracting. But once I got locked in and particularly like the device that they use here and you know, David Byrne said in the Q and A after that, like this was just their show. Like, they didn't do anything special for what Jonathan Demi was recording. This was the show they were already touring. Is they slowly add a member of the band each number until it's the whole band. And I think as soon as it was the whole band, I was like locked in. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was just like grooving in my seat the whole time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, as you mentioned, because this was being simulcast. As the world premiere, the Talking Heads reunited at TIFF this year for a Q&A with Spike Lee. And uh, unfortunately, the simulcast was cut off and was never brought back at a certain point. Um, the Q&A was not the best. It was a little awkward. But, <laughs> but uh, there was some interesting and fun insights that were shared, that being one of them. Um. Yeah, as I said off the bat, I loved this. I've spoken in the past, I think when we were talking about True Stories, that uh, I've spoken about my Talking Heads fandom and that I want to be a bigger Talking Heads fan because I quite like their music. And whenever I put on their music, I'm always kind of in awe a little bit because it's so good and so unique and so unlike... Any other music that I've heard from another band. And this made me an even bigger Talking Heads fan. I've been listening to the remaster of this particular show all week since seeing this.
0: It's pretty, it's pretty incredible. And like speaking to the craft that Jonathan Demi has in here, like he understands because he's a filmmaker. And and I'm not trying to denigrate people who are hired to do, like, live concerts and live comedy shows. But, like, because he has a, like, feature narrative film sensibility,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: he creates a narrative through the music and through the way he shoots it. And it's incredibly compelling and artistic for a person who's not literally at the show. Mm -hmm. And it seems so purposeful and... At the same time, watching it, I just kept thinking, like, imagine seeing this for real. Yeah. Imagine being at those shows because it's so captivating and so much of what's captivating about it is like the stage show that the Talking Heads created. Yeah. Um, And then Jonathan Demi captures it in a way that brings that to life for an audience that isn't genuinely there. And it just, you know, in the Q&A and in what I've read from people afterwards is just the biggest thing that people feel watching this is joy. Like there's just, I have a quote from Roger Ebert from when he like originally um, reviewed, stop making sense, like back in the day. And he said, quote, David Byrne just seems so happy to be alive and making music.
1: Yeah. And I got that vibe from everybody in the band during this special, so many
0: big smiles, like just like dancing to their music in a way that shows that they love their music.
1: And like so many little moments between each of the individual performers that are just so sweet and so nice. And I didn't, I just, I was awestruck by how incredibly talented all these people are. Like the fact that they're doing this and performing this before a time of in your monitors and click tracks during live performances and using computer effects. And they're also locked in with each other and the performances never falter, and it sounds so great, is incredible. I didn't expect a concert movie to make me emotional, yet this did. It was around the performance, and I've been listening to the song and repeat, it's always on when we get in the car, of This Must Be The Place, naive melody. That was a particular highlight for me in the performance, where it just like hit me really hard emotionally, just because of the beauty of the performance. And it's all centered around like floor lamp Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's so good and the song is so good and it all just comes together. And that is to what you're saying and what Roger Ebert was saying about when as soon as David Byrne starts his little routine with the lamp, he just, you can see the joy in his face and it's so evident. But
0: it also takes Jonathan Demme very artfully cutting that scene and shooting it from a very particular angle. If he were to just shoot that, because I agree, I felt very, very moved Mm -hmm. by like, not just the song, but like the perform, like everything that was happening on screen that spoke to my heart in a very particular way. Mm -hmm. Um, but if it was just shot as if you were an audience member, yeah, it probably wouldn't do that. It might, if you were genuinely at the show in the audience, but I feel like so many of the things in this kind of genre are just shot that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's it's actually shot from a really interesting angle where the lamp is is almost like coming at the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's like an artistry to it that creates a feeling that's so purposeful. And I really, I really appreciate it. And I think that's what makes it the so called greatest musical, what do I call it, greatest concert film of all time.
1: Well, I, I completely agree. And I think it's in choices like a really evident choice for me is that the, the talking heads stage show, they have stuff that's projected in the background on screens to accompany some of the songs. And there's a lot of that sticking with this uh, one song. Um, this must be the place. They have a lot of that happening, but Jonathan Demme chooses to focus on the players Yeah, and have little intimate moments and close-ups and shots of them as opposed to consistently showing the whole stage so you can see what's what everything is he's wanting to focus on the people instead of yeah he's he's
0: doing something different with that show such that even if you were somebody who was in the audience you're now going to get a different experience watching stop making sense and if we're translating something to a different medium I feel like that's what we should be doing Mm. and I think that speaks to like what Frank Oz learned in making Little Shop of Horrors, different mediums require different things. Even if it's the same story, even if it's the same performance, it needs something different in a different medium when it's going to be consumed by a different audience. Yeah. Um. And I think that that's just so incredible. I was I was really blown away by this. I would go see it again when it's back. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And yeah. I also have been listening to the to the music a lot.
1: Yeah. See and seeing this in IMAX especially was. Quite an experience. I've seen it so big and crisp and clear and beautiful sound. Gorgeous. I'm so glad we went.
0: How did Stop Making Sense make you feel?
1: Awestruck and captivated. How did it make you feel?
0: It made me feel in awe of the music, the performance, and the capturing of it. All of the above.
1: Gorgeous. I really hope A24 puts out a real nice. 4k edition of this eventually
0: you need to stop putting out stuff (laughs) very tempted to buy the talk to me hand even though we didn't love that movie it's 110 american dollars and the stupid pearl piggy bank and i'm like (laughs) again why do i need a piggy bank where would i even put that so i did not buy either of
1: those things but But i I sure wanted to sure want them um speaking of a24 yep uh I got to do a mystery movie pick, and I chose to revisit the 2019 drama slash comedy, The Farewell. It was written and directed by Lulu Wang, and it stars Sujin Zhao as Nai Nai, Aquafina as Billy, Zima as Haiyan, and Diana Lin as Lu Zhang. Synopsis A Chinese family discovers their grandmother has only a short while to live and decide to keep her in the dark scheduling a wedding together before she dies. What do you think of The Farewell?
0: Um, The Farewell is another... We've we've watched a couple of movies in the last couple of weeks that were like in this pocket of really amazing 2019 bangers that we saw in this like theater renaissance that you and I were having. I mean, I think that was happening because like 2019 was a really good year for film. Mm -hmm. Um, But also we were going to the theater more. And seems just in this last little bit of time, we're kind of revisiting some of these things that we saw in the theater in 2019 and yet haven't revisited since then. Um, So this is one that we were excited about it at the time and we went and saw it and we really, I think we both really, really liked it. And then we just haven't watched it again. Um, One of the most interesting things to me about the farewell is that when we saw it in 2019, I didn't know who Aquafina was. Yeah. And so this was my first exposure to her and she's so different in this than in most of her other things. Now, having seen so much other stuff that she's in, I'm kind of reading some of the Aquafina isms into Mm Billy in a way that I didn't see them originally. Yeah. But I just have to say, I mean, Aquafina in general is a total babe, Mm -hmm. but in this, when she's not so stylized and she just looks like a person I could run into on the street, I'm like big crush central.
1: Mm, Yeah.
0: When she's just like a real person and not a, not a character. Um, big, big, big crush on her there. Yeah, but-, but
1: the more familiarity with her is nice, and just having more context for her on this rewatch, just it it added a lot more for me. And, and like, and I'll just say too, yeah, when I saw this with you in 2019, I quite liked it, but I didn't connect with it the way that I connected it with it on this watch. Um, this hit. A lot harder this time.
0: It's a really, really, really quietly beautiful film. Yeah. I think there's uh, danger that people would come away from it thinking it was boring, but I think that it's doing something so quietly and slowly that if you don't allow it to creep up on you, you'll miss it.
2: Mm -hmm. because this is
0: a film that like and i and i remember this happening to me the first time we saw it too but i think even more so this time we're like something is mounting in my heart that i don't even realize is mounting in my heart and then all of a sudden it just like bursts yeah and you're like Whoo, i didn't even realize that that was like in some ways it's similar to after sun in that sense of like you don't even realize that all of a sudden you're going to feel a particular way and then you do um I guess, like, After Sun as well, this is coming from, like, a really specific personal story for Lulu Wang. Like, this is the true... What does it start with? Um, Based on a true lie or something like that? Yeah. And I was reading a little bit about this. And it's really heartbreaking, the journey this this went through to become what it is. Because Lulu Wang was looking for financers for this. And... The only way that she would get funding is by adding a white character into the film and punching it up into more of a comedy. Hmm. And so she refused. She was like, Nope, I'm not going to do that. Like that's not this story. Um, And
1: that's a big change, like to shift tone and genre.
0: And she, but she refused. And I think it being a personal story, I have to imagine is part of the reason that she was able to refuse, despite I'm sure the temptation of money and, And, like, getting to make a film. Um, But what she did instead is she did an episode of um, This American Life on this.
2: Oh. And it was
0: called What You Don't Know. And that came out in 2016. And then she got funding. Mm. (laughs) After she... Because I think it became quite a popular This American Life episode. Um, And it's such a brilliant movie that wouldn't... It would be forgettable if it was... Changed to make financers happy.
1: And what a perfect home it found in A24. Like this just is so at home with what an after son is, or what the stuff Mike Mills does, or even everything everywhere to a degree. Or
0: moonlight. Lulu Wang and Barry Jenkins are married, and they are an A twenty four power couple. Holy shit! You didn't know that? No. Yeah. They, yeah.
1: <laughs> Jesus. They are
0: an a, They are the A twenty four power couple. <laughs>
1: wow, that's wonderful. Shit. Um.
0: And they seem like two very thoughtful, intentional, smart creators.
1: people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like this has kind of been a week of watching movies that are so good that I'm revisiting clips on YouTube and this movie was no exception. I, I revisited so many. There's a, there's a, so many amazing moments, especially from Billy Aquafina's character. And there's one where she's having a conversation with her mom.
0: Yeah. That one, that's always when I start crying. Cause I'm just like, poof, I feel like what Lulu Wang does in this. So, brilliantly and so subtly is like through this hyper specific and kind of like it feels like a story that could go viral right this like we Mm -hmm. lied to our grandmother about her having cancer yeah through that she ends up having this really beautiful complex exploration of like familial love like familial difference and uh, of immigration of like what it's like to be a child of parents who immigrated and to like have family still in like your country origin. Right. Yeah. But she doesn't hit you over the head with it. It's so nuanced and layered and difficult and complex. And then it builds to a point where it just takes my breath away.
1: Well, yeah, I think a, a great examination of that, especially in the context of East and Western cultures is this beautiful piece. Another scene I revisited from, um, It's when Uncle Hyven is it's a conversation between Billy, him and her dad and just talking about family and what family is meant to take on Mm -hmm. um, and the differences (laughs) of what that means in the context of the East versus the West. And it is what he says is so beautiful and so impactful and I can see how it can ruffle so many feathers from especially people in the West
0: I mean, look at that, right? Like, this could be a viral story of, like, we lied to her grandmother about her having cancer from a Western lens, but then, at least as the movie depicts, that's a common practice in the East, right? Like, mm-hmm. it would, that wouldn't be a story. Um, I don't know if you know this, but the sister of Nai, Nai mm-hmm. little Nai, Nai <laughs> she's called, is played by the real sister from real life. Oh, really? Yeah, like, it's Lulu Wang's real aunt, or real great aunt, I
1: guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I love nine nine and I especially love the relationship between Billy and Nine-Nine. I'm just <laughs> I'm getting emotional thinking about the very last scene uh, in the film when they're in the car.
0: It's yeah, it's really, <laughs> it's really beautiful. And I feel like in some ways this film and a lot of other films from 2019 got done dirty by the pandemic because that eclipsed the success they were having. Like I, I really loved this movie at the time and I hadn't thought about it a whole lot. Um, and as I was like looking back on it, I read that Aquafina won best actress in the musical comedy category at the Golden Globes. Oh, gorgeous. Like, I've completely forgotten about that. And I yeah. feel like it happening when it happened, and then some other like complicated things that have happened to Aquafina that I feel like today is not the day to get into that, but have made her have been harder on her than is fair Mm -hmm. and she hasn't had the success in these kind of like really nuanced dramas that I think she's really capable of. And she's kind of continued to, to play more roles like she plays in like Shang-Chi and uh, she's great in that, but she's phenomenal in this. Yeah. And I, I just want to see her in more dramas because she's so good. This movie is so good. I have a feeling the next time I watch it, it's going to be a five.
1: That's just it. Like I fully went into recording this episode with a four and a half out of five. I'm like, after talking about this more, it's just going to be a five. Next
0: one's going to be that for me too. I just know it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, Yeah, I, uh, I love this movie. It is so good. It, yet another one that deserves to be in the Criterion Collection. And... Have like a real special release. Um, Love it so much. How does it make you feel?
0: The farewell makes me feel a quiet, tender sorrow for the complexity of familial love. Really nice. How does it make you feel?
1: Completely swept up in its beauty and pain.
0: You know, not that different feelings for this next one, (laughs) which is also an A24 movie. And has kind of a similar story, I feel like, to The Farewell in that we saw it at the time. We really liked it at the time. And then we haven't really re- revisited it. So I picked the 2016 comedy drama 20th Century Women. It's directed and written by one of our faves, Mike Mills. We've already covered Come On, Come On and Beginners on the show, I believe. Yeah, we
1: did a deep dive on Beginners with Rachel O'Coin.
0: Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good one. Highly recommend you watch Beginners if you haven't seen it and then listen to that episode. Um, it stars a friggin' banger cast.
1: As we were watching it, I'm just like, oh, my God, there's a lot of really, really good, good people. people
0: <laughs> so Annette Bening plays Dorothea. Uh, Lucas Jade Zuman plays Jamie. Elle Fanning plays Julie, Greta Gerwig, Abby and Billy Crudup William. Synopsis is the story of a teenage boy, his mother and two other women who helped raise him among the love and freedom of Southern California in 1979. What did you think of 20th Century Women?
1: Uh, it's yet another example of Mike Mills just being one of my favorite top filmmakers. Um, there's something about his movies that just fully draw me in and are just a feast for both the eyes, but also the heart. Um, but there's also something that every time I watch a Mike Mills film, I feel so creatively inspired. I, I, I don't I don't know what it is. Cause
0: he's a graphic designer.
1: I, I mean, maybe I don't know if that's like a subconscious thing that I'm just like, oh, he's he's in Minecraft craft, too. <laughs> um, but I, I think there's just something he just knows how to assemble a film. That just fires on all cylinders and just engages me in so many different ways.
0: I also often feel very creatively inspired by Mike Mills films, and I think for a different reason. I actually did a little exercise with my creative writing students a couple of years ago where we watched the trailers for beginners, 20th century women and come on, come on to talk about like artistic style and how like you can see the through line of Mike Mills voice, like having an artistic voice such that even if you weren't told this film is made by this person, you would recognize the voice and be able to say, no, this is a Mike Mills film. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that really inspires me about his work is it's all semi-autobiographical. Yeah. And As someone who largely only does creative work, and for me that's writing, about my own life, sometimes it feels like too solipsistic or too self-involved to be writing about my own life. Like, who would want to know about that? And seeing him craft these three different films that are not memoirs, they're not biographies, but they are inspired and honoring the real people in his lives and then fictionalizing particular elements gives me a lot of like faith that I could do the same thing. And also knowing that like, he hasn't run out of ways to do that. Like Mm -hmm. it's not like he did one film about his gay dad and then was like, okay, and now I'm doing other kinds of films and then failed at that because he's only, you know, like he's still able to take films about, relationships that matter to him and people that matter to him and turn that into something. And I, and I love that that's what he does. Yeah. I think it's really, really, really brilliant.
1: I agree. And something about this film, 20th Century Women, that is one of my favorite things in film. I'd say one of our favorite things in film is when a ragtag group of people find each other and yeah. care a lot about each other. Yeah, It's that whole found family thing. There's a
0: scene where one of them is like potentially harmed, and they're all running to the hospital together, that like just makes my heart swell because it's like that idea of like, nobody has to be there except for the kid's mom, mm-hmm. and yet they're all there. And I'm just like, I love this so much.
1: Well, I love that anytime something is going, like for all intents and purposes, with the exception of Annette Benning and I can't remember her son, and Anna, Anna Green Gables' boyfriend.
0: <laughs> Gilbert Blythe uh, in in the movie what's his name what
1: are their characters Dorothea and Jamie which are mother and son they're all strangers but yet if one of them or all of them are in some state of crisis they're all there for each other
0: yeah it's a really it's just a really beautiful ensemble cast piece and I was reading some reviews of it that said that he Mike Mills is using some similar like narrative devices as beginners does, but what it does in a really complex way is it actually has multiple narrators. Who's like, they have interweaving overlapping stories and like abilities to narrate both each other's and their own lives in like a way that's quite nuanced in how it braids together. Mm -hmm. And it isn't messy. It's just beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's, it's really, really special. This was one that, you know, I don't know if it's just because at the time we, no, I was, I, I must have just been finishing up school, but I saw this without you. I mm-hmm. saw this with um one of my former coworkers from David's Tea mm. um, and we saw it at the Princess Theater, which is gone now. R.I.P. And I remember seeing it and being like, I have to show this to Elliot. And then we went back and saw it together. Um, and I can't believe we ever really went to movies without each other. Seems weird to think about. (laughs) Yeah, I would see a Mike Mills film without you, Mm -hmm. Um, and I like i I really something spoke to me about this film in a way that I wanted to share it with you. Now watching it, I'm like it has some After Sun (laughs) vibes, yeah, in like a different way, a little bit of a quirkier way. But the score kind of has that similar. Mm -hmm. The score cues you to the fact that this is a reflective piece, yeah. That like we're we're looking at memory. Um,
1: Yeah, And I love the device of there is voiceover narration from the characters as they are the ages that they are in the film, but they're reflecting back on this time as if they're talking in the future. But they're still...
0: Yeah, it's kind of like past, present, and future overlapping with one another in a really emotional way. Mm -hmm. This film just has some lines that even though I hadn't revisited this since 2016, I don't think there's some lines that I, as I remembered that they were about to come up where I'm like, right. Yeah. (sighs) That is some really insightful, emotional insight into, I said insight twice into, into what it is to be a human. Um, Mike Mills, his dialogue and his like insights into the world just get me every time. And
1: um, there's one line delivered by Dorothea when she's talking with, um, abby about the way that she will never get to see her son
0: that's the line i was thinking of that
1: feels very that that gets me in a similar way as the us mother stand still thing from barbie
0: i think this one's better sorry greta
1: but <laughs> still both involve greta
0: both involve greta i, I was also wondering if um the Birkenstocks and Barbie are an homage to Dorothea <laughs> in this, but it's also interesting to watch this again now that we've seen Come On, Come On a couple times because I see the the way that Mike Mills is like shifting and evolving and, and developing new parts of his style. I just finished reading a really fantastic book on creativity. It took me three years to read it, but that's okay. I started it in the pandemic and then picked it back up again this year. <laughs> Uh, called The Creative Habit, and it's written by Twyla Tharp, who's a choreographer and dancer. Um, and so it's not, it's about just creativity in general. And one of the things she says in her last chapter is that the best artists, when you look at their oeuvre from start to end, they're comp- they're such different artists, but then when you look at them in lineage, you see how one piece is begetting the next piece is begetting the next piece. And she gives us the like definitive example of that, the Beatles, So you start with like a, I want to hold your hand, and you end with like a, I want you, she's so heavy, and those look so completely opposed to each other, but then as you start looking through the albums, you see how one album is pushing into the next album, is pushing into the next album, and having just read that, I see that here, where like some of the things from beginners then push into 20th century women, then push into come on, come on, and it's not like he's getting stronger or better, he's just changing. Yeah, and and doing new. Th- so what what she says in the book is it's about doing new things in a masterful way. You've mastered yeah. one thing; don't keep doing that. Push into a new kind of mastery.
1: I even see that in the John Waters journey we're on right now. Totally. Yeah.
0: We are. Yeah, currently watching a bunch of John Waters films and then doing a special John Waters episode. So look
1: forward to that. Yeah. Um. Okay. Music is incredible in this movie.
0: Yeah, I picked it particularly this week because talking heads are prominently featured both in the soundtrack and in like the plot of the movie. <laughs> yeah. There's some phrases that we won't repeat on the show here that like <clears throat> when I hear that word in film, I usually get so mad and yet it's so hilarious Yeah, and I love it so much in this movie in context. Um, yeah, the soundtrack rips.
1: Yeah, it's I mean, it's another reason to love the talking heads. I love all the Mike. Well, Mike Mills loves older jazz pieces. He used them a lot in Beginners and there's a few in here that are put on by Dorothea. And it's just so clearly tied to Mike Mills and his parents is like, this is the kind of music that he listened to, his parents listened to growing up. And I, I really love it. Um, but I'll never forget this movie, not only because it's incredible, but it introduced me to the song Why Can't I Touch It by Buzzcocks, which is song. one of my all time favorites. And I cannot thank this movie enough for introducing me to it. And what a perfect song to put over end credits to just make you sit in your seat and reflect on everything you just watched. 100%. Why
0: you gotta stay till the end of the credits?
1: 100%. I just
0: think <clears throat> I love what Mike Mills is doing here. And I sometimes feel like, people don't talk about 20th century women enough. They talk about beginners. And again, beginners has that fair, the farewell thing of like, what an audacious true story of like, you know, your elderly father who came out as gay after, you know, like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then come on, come on, has the whole walking Phoenix thing going for it. And I can't help, but wonder if like 20th century women isn't talked about as much because it's about women. Mm-hmm. um, And Mike Mills has said that like, the char- so he has said, this is a quote from him, the character of Jamie reflects my own experience. The characters of Dorothea and Abby were inspired by my mother and older sister. The character of Julie based on experience of my friends. And then, quote, I felt like I was raised by my mom and sisters, so I was always appealing to women in the punk scene or women in my world. I always leaned to them to figure out my life as a straight white guy. This movie is a love letter to the women who raised me. And that's really beautiful because mm-hmm. I feel like you totally feel that by the end of the movie, that like this was about honoring... His people, and he has said, like, while there's fictionalized elements to this, like I believe his his parents were together until his mother's death. Um, Like he said, the character of Dorothea is his mom. Like that's just Mm. what she was like, (laughs) and she's so, yeah, she's very special. I don't know. I really, I really love this movie, and I was having some very reflective thoughts yesterday because the character of Abby was born in 1955, and my parents were born in 1956. And the character of Jamie was born in 1962 and your parents were born in
1: 64, 65.
0: Right. So like watching this movie set in 1979, Abby is roughly the age my parents would be. And Jamie is roughly the age your parents would be. Mm-hmm. And that felt really fascinating to think about. Yeah. Because they feel more modern than I imagined, than I can imagine our parents being. <laughs> yeah. Um, And I think that just speaks to that line of when Annette, When Dorothea says, like, you'll never see, I'll never see my son out in the world the way you will, we'll also never see our parents out in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And I was just really reflective about that, Mm -hmm. like, that our parents were versions of these characters in 1979.
1: Yeah, I was, I was aware of that too. I'm just like, as birth years are coming up, I'm like, holy shit, like.
0: And Dorothea is, like, 10 years older than my grandpa. Yeah. You know, so it's like, he was in his forties around that time. And just thinking about all of that. And yeah, because Mike Mills grounds the film in such a specificity of time of like what the seventies was like, it's just like, Holy shit. Like this was, my grandpa was 40 at this time. My mom was 20 something at this time. Your parents were teenagers at this time. So weird to think about. And I, and I love that Mike Mills Creates films that are so hyper specific to his experience and to these people that he's honoring that create a space for you to reflect on your own relationships with like the people in your lives and time and memory.
1: Yeah. He's a master.
0: Yeah. Really, really like him.
1: I love him so much.
0: How does 20th century women make you feel?
1: It makes this little arty punky boy's heart swoon. How does it make you feel?
0: It makes me feel an emotionally resonant sense of reflection.
1: Really nice.
0: Should we talk about some dads?
1: Dads of the week. Who's your nominee for bad dad of the week?
0: I'm nominating Audrey too.
1: That that was my <laughs> that was my runner-up. I feel like you'll be able to guess who mine was.
0: The, the dentist?
1: Uh Orin Scrivello, DDS. Yeah,
0: I don't like him, so I don't want to give him that. He's a bad man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yours is a bad plant.
0: Yeah, he is a bad plan. But think of this. Think of this. Audrey 2 is just one little shitty manipulative plant.
1: Oh, yeah. 100%.
0: Like, once you get the full arc of Audrey 2 and the many Audrey 2s like him, <laughs> fuck that guy.
1: Well, and what's kind of nuts is that Audrey 2 is so manipulative, but yet doesn't really bury the lead about that.
0: No, feed me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Must be blood. Honestly,
0: when he's getting like, feed Missy more, that's like the vibes that Thompson, our cat, gives me whenever he's like, stop watching TV and give me treats right now. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I just think Audrey, too, considering the breadth of what that character means across the entirety of the film and particularly thinking about the director's cut ending, it's bad dad.
1: Very manipulative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Orange Cravello, it's just like abusive, sick, twisted, masochistic. Gross. But Audrey 2 will look cooler on the graphic. So.
0: (laughs) Cool. Great reason.
1: (laughs) Audrey too. Don't Don't be be a rad dad. My rad dad nominee, I picked Abby from 20th Century Women. Ah. The reason? While being a young adult navigating the world, especially in the late 70s as a woman, she's a pretty. Admirable person. She pursues her passions. She's unselfishly there for the important people in her life. I love where she lands politically. I would love that in a parent. She's supportive, and her taste in music is top tier. Would you pick?
0: I picked Dorothea. Yeah,
1: yeah. I just
0: feel like it's hard not to give her that ultimate title because I think that for everything you're saying about Abby, Dorothea is also guiding her there. Like, I think Dorothy is acting as a parental figure for everyone in that house and everyone not in that house, like, including um, Julie. And I find her to be, like, strong and even when, even though she has, like, some stubbornness to her, like, moments where she's perhaps being a little bit willfully ignorant, she ultimately always comes to a place of reflection about that. Um, I love that she acknowledges that she can't parent completely on her own and that like it takes multiple people to support any individual um i love that she knows when she's messed up and like apologizes for that and i love the like care and love that she gives to everyone like there's a really beautiful moment in the film where like julie has done something that she believes dorothea will hate her for and Dorothea parents her in that moment by just like giving her a hug and a kiss on the forehead and saying, it's okay. Like, I'm not mad at you. And I feel like Abby's just like, not quite there yet. Like, mm-hmm. you know, Abby feels, and I mean, true to what Mike Mills said, it feels more like big, cool, big sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah.
1: Well, and I think something that's really incredible about the character of Dorothea in the film is that as a parent, I feel like a, I mean not being a parent but a emotion or a sense that you is quite common is fear and Dorothea chooses to almost reclaim that sense of fear in new ways even when it's drawing her into how a parent might typically react or in some cases maybe should react She's resisting that pull and trying to approach it in a new way that might be constructive or helpful or beneficial.
0: And even though she's not perfect, like she definitely has moments where she messes up. I feel like she always reflects on them and and I love her sense of honesty. Like her honesty is where sometimes she mucks up a little bit, but yeah, yeah, I, I, I really like her.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm here for it. Dorothea. Yeah, for sure.
0: Okay. Dorothea.
1: Be your be dad. Rad dad. Rad wreck. Go to the theater.
0: And not the movie theater.
1: The theater. The
0: theater. Um, We spent some money and went and saw the final show in Edmonton of the musical six. And it was.
1: Incredible. Yeah,
0: it was amazing. And, you know, that thing we talked about when we were discussing Little Shop of Horrors of the that feeling you get when it's happening live in front of you is so special and. I feel like you know. I we we went to a couple fringe shows when they were here, which is much more affordable than like a full musical. But getting out into to some live theater, regardless of like what it is, and and the like looking at the various price points, whether it's even live comedy, just getting out and doing some like live show stuff, I think can be be really wonderful. Um, we are going to see Little Shop of Horrors in November as well, and we're really really excited about so
1: that. So excited.
0: So yeah, go to the theater.
1: Yeah um productions big or small seek some out in your community love it kiss kiss bang bang thank you so much for listening we drop a new episode every thursday you can follow us and slide into our dms on instagram and threads at baddad.raddad get a sneak peek of what we've been watching on our individual letterbox accounts the usernames are in the show notes and we would absolutely love you forever If you would share us with the rad people in your life and drop us a rating review or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening from. That's going to do it for these mean green mothers from outer space this week. So until next time.
0: I'm Kylie and my dad's dead.
1: I'm Elliot. My dad's a deadbeat. But remember, not all dads have to be bad.